To throw in your two cents worth is to speak your opinion, share your beliefs or points of view on a matter. They say, if you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. The two cents cast by students of Campbell Girls Grammar School invites a range of perspectives, experiences and expertise on all sorts of issues and topics that matter to us and the world. The Two Cents cast is hosted by our school leaders and created by our community, for our community and beyond. We hope you enjoy our Two Cents Worth. Hello everyone and welcome back to all of our listeners of the Two Cents podcast. My name is Tegan and I'm joined by Izzy and Charlie. And we are your hosts. We are super excited to welcome you back to another episode. With us today, we're super lucky to be able to speak to Associate Professor Lisa McKay-Brown, the Assistant Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. Lisa has extensive expertise as a teacher working in a range of education settings with a particular focus on students with disability. She is particularly interested in how young people with mental health disorders and other disabilities are marginalised by education settings and how this can be challenged. Welcome, Lisa, and thank you for coming on our episode today. Thanks so much for having me. It's really wonderful to be here. It is such an honour to be able to speak to you, and we are so thankful for you coming on and sharing your expertise in this very important area of um, accessibility. So the first question that we have for you is, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work as the Assistant Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education and the accessibility field in general? For sure. So um, as you mentioned in the intro, I am a teacher, someone who's been a teacher for a really long time, um, who just happens to work at a university now, but my passion for I guess education and working to ensure that all young people, uh, children and young people, have the opportunity for the best education they can possibly get has always been a passion of mine and and that I think will continue throughout um, my career and beyond. Um, So for me, um, I guess my interest in this space started um, as a teacher and, and me as a teacher working in settings where I really did not know how to support students who had um, difficulties and differences or or disabilities. Um, I myself was really lost. I was probably a really bad teacher for those students back back in the back in the day as my youngest child likes to say. Um, And um, and so I guess for me wanting to do better and be better for, for my students led me to do further study. Um, which led me down psychology path and welfare and, and all sorts of other sort of pathways um, until I was working in wellbeing in, a, in a schools in, in, in wellbeing roles. And that's where I really got to see what a difference um, the, the right support and the best support for students with disability can make for them to be able to access education and to be able to succeed and have real opportunities and options for their futures. So that, that I guess, is, is where, I, where I got to. So now I work at the University of Melbourne in a team called the Learning Intervention Team. And our team is really focused on, again, training teachers and other people who work in education settings to be able to support students with disability in, in all types of education settings. Um, so 
I have that part of my role, which is very about much about teacher education and professional learning. And then my other role is, yes, Assistant Dean of Diversity and Inclusion. So that's, that's a slightly different um, similarities but differences in that role in the sense that I uh, spend my time uh, really looking at how we can better support diversity and inclusion within our own division, the education division, um, but also how I can work with people across the university to better improve um, diversity and inclusion in that space. So this year is very much focused on creating an action plan that looks at how we can um, not only better support the diverse needs of our staff and inclusion for all staff and students at, this, at the, the division, but also to think about how we can embrace some of the things that I've been doing with my team as teachers for a long time around inclusion in education, but actually translating that work into how we teach university students. So starting to look at what can we do to ensure that the learning we deliver as tertiary educators is accessible. So I think, you know, that's, um, while there are a lot of, you know, different focus areas for the diversity and inclusion portfolio, I think in the context of our conversation, that's that's probably the most um, pertinent. So um, for me, yeah, it's not only about making sure that spaces of learning are, are, are physically accessible and environments are set up in a way that can best support all types of learners, but also ensuring that the curriculum is accessible um, and that the way that we offer teaching and learning opportunities uh, is accessible. So we have to think really carefully about what we're teaching and how we're teaching and how we're assessing too, because often assessments are not accessible um, for some students as well. So it's, it's about, it's a whole shift in culture. It's a whole shift in mindset. And there are certainly amazing places within the education system that are doing that really well. Um, but we need to start this happening everywhere. We need to have this, this, this accessibility and inclusion conversation really at the forefront of, um, of, of how, how we think about education. Um, the Disability Royal Commission has been talking about it all week um, and looking at the impacts for students um, in this space. So, yeah, that's probably a, a, an overview or a response to that question that hopefully um, answered it for you. I enjoyed how you began with saying that you had a lack of knowledge and it's just not something you just start with and that you really just chose that this was an interest of yours and it was a concern of yours and it shows that everyone has that power to, you know, seek that knowledge and take it upon themselves um, to have that initiative to, you know, make, you know, whatever whatever issue it is but um yeah and I really really like the phrase like shifting the mindset I think it's something that's really hard but something that we definitely need to start doing more um each individually so with our next question um you work widely in accessibility what is the biggest stigma you've witnessed about people with disability and their education yeah that's a really good question I think um I'd, I'd like to think things are shifting and in some spaces they certainly are. I think one of the things, and, you know, this might be a bit, um, might be a bit 
boring for some of you, some of your listeners, but I'm, I'm going to go there. Um, so we've got a couple of different models of disability that you know are used historically um, that you are very uh, likely to be aware of. Um, you know, we've got the medical model, which is about the label and the diagnosis, and we've got the social model, which is about um, you know how the environment um, and attitudes and beliefs create barriers for people with disability. And I think so a lot of the stigma that you see can come from people assuming or making assumptions that the label a person has is all there is to them. And I think that in itself is something that we really need to challenge. Um, one of my colleagues likes to use this um, analogy, which is like the, the diagnosis, you know, so the medical model aspect of this, the diagnosis is like a door handle. And it's a door handle that opens a door. So, so what it does is it gives you some information and some context, but it doesn't tell you anything about the individual. Mm. Um, all it does is mm. let you know that there, there's something else we need to learn and there's more questions that we need to ask. And so I think that's the first part of, of the stigma that might be there is that sometimes people might have preconceived ideas about what disability is and um, who people with disability are. Um, what you see on the outside is not all there is to anybody, no matter who you are, whether you have a disability or not. So um, starting to ask questions about who someone is, what their life experience is, um, how their disability may have shaped how they see the world, um, how does the world impact their ability to be in it, um, due to a disability, I think, you know, are things that we need to be really aware of. So I think, so one of the biggest, biggest stigmas is, is labelling. And I think another stigma is this sense sometimes, and, you know, like, like with anything we say, you know, some people think this, some people don't. Um, but, you know, there is still that belief that, you know, um, people with disability might need to have, um, be taught elsewhere. Um, it might be that they can't have the same job as as somebody without a disability, and and again, that's all about it's all about listening to, um, you know, or hearing messages that might not be there. So for me, um, a really important thing when we're talking about disability is the understanding that everybody with a disability is an individual. Their disability um, impacts them in different ways. Their disability gives them strengths. You know, there are certainly aspects of disability that are um, pluses and um, are, are things we should be looking at. We, we have to stop using a deficit mindset. It's really important. We need to ensure that people with disability have the same choice across all activities. Um, and ways of interacting with the community that people um, without disability have. And I think, you know, that often in inclusive education is one of the, the, the tensions um, when we talk about seeing the mainstream and, and, you know, special education settings is, you know, um, you will hear people talk about the need for people with disability and their families to have choice. Um, but we also know that outcomes for good inclusive education um, you know, are better for people with disabilities. So I think that we need to, yeah, really focus on 
not labeling, learning about people, and also, I guess, understanding intersectionality and the idea that just because someone has a disability, that doesn't mean that's all they are. You know, you can have a disability and um, identify as LGBTQIA+. You can have a disability and identify as someone from um, another culture, you know. And so I think that um, we need to understand that all humans are complex. Um, people with disability are complex. People without disability are complex and, and, and move away from, from some of that, that labelling stigma and that belief that disability means you can't, which is wrong disability means you absolutely can like anybody else yeah I love that the deficit mindset I think that's such an important um aspect of the conversation that we've been having um at school recently about changing our attitudes as able-bodied and neurotypical people so thank you so much for shedding light on that um so I guess you sort of touched on this a little bit when you talked about um the education sector but how does this stigma I guess make a tangible barrier for people with disabilities these attitudes we have like how do they make things manifest in real life yeah look it it happens in in a number of ways and I think um some ways it might be the belief that um the mainstream sector can't provide the same supports as say the 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 segregated sector I'm going to call it that the segregated sector and um and that, you know, students with disability, if they go into a segregated setting, they get, you know, they have smaller class sizes, they've got more adult support, they've got specialist teachers very often um, working with them um, in order to ensure that they are, you know, in, a, in an education setting that is safe and supportive and, and, and works for them. However, we know that... Um, in inclusive settings, and I mean inclusive settings that embrace inclusive pedagogies, have an inclusive mindset, um, have developed a culture of inclusion, so not just saying you are but actually doing those things. We know that students with disability have better academic outcomes, better social outcomes, um, better options post-school. However, in order to have a really good inclusive school environment, you have to put the resources into it. You have to have the specialist knowledge into it. And you've got to have um, teachers and leaders in schools who are willing to step outside of what is considered the usual way of doing school. So there are places in the world like... Um, uh, New Brunswick in Canada, where they've kind of, you know, really created its inclusive school systems and been doing really well, um, closed a lot of the segregated settings, really learned how to embrace young people, children and young people with disability in their, their school settings, switched pedagogy, did all sorts of things. Now, you know, nothing's perfect, but um, they certainly have gone a long way towards that. I think the same with um, thinking about um, the attitudes and beliefs of the adults is really important part of this accessibility. So, 
you know, we know there are still stories of families who have children with disability who go to their local school and get told that that's probably not the best place for them to be enrolled. You know, so there's still a lot of indirect and direct discrimination that happens when families try to enrol their child in, in a mainstream school setting. We know too that, that young people who may have, with a disability, who may have gone through a primary, a mainstream primary school, when it comes to going to secondary school, families make the choice to move them to a segregated setting rather than send them into a secondary school. We know that the secondary school environment can become really difficult for students with disability without the right supports. Um, they're often much larger places. They're often um, noisy and confusing places. Um, they, the young people have to make connections with lots of different adults. You know, you haven't got your, your core adult that you're, that you're with most of the time who knows you really, really well. Um, so I think, you know, we have to think about in secondary settings in particular, how do we build systems that young people with disability mean they have good key contacts, people who will work with them, um, teachers who are willing to make adjustments for them. And, you know, I guess don't get me started on BCE and the um, how, how BCE can be really difficult because of its very prescriptive, structured way of working. You know, while there is special provision available for, for students with disability, what those adjustments look like are not necessarily what a student actually needs. Um, you know, so I think, you know, we have to think really carefully if we're going to really say, if we're going to break these barriers down for students with disability accessing education and being in, in settings, we have to look at the system. We have to look at how we're educating, you know, and it's not just students with diagnosed disability that find the senior years of schooling really difficult. Students, you know, who have difficulties, you know, find that too. So I think, um, I don't know, I've probably gone really off tangent here with this answer, but, you know. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. <laughs> um, so I think that for me, it, it's, um, it really is thinking about um, what we need to change, having the courage to make that change. And I often talk about the courage to change. But, you know, it's not easy to change a system. It's not easy to um, ensure that not only the young people but the um, adults in the setting are getting the support that they need. You know, teachers um, and leaders need support to make these shifts. It can't just happen. Um, we need to look at not only our own beliefs and attitudes, but the artefacts in, in, in the settings, you know, are they accessible to everybody? You know, do we support um, children whose parents may have a disability when they're trying to access and learn more about their child's schooling? So it's not just about the child, it's, it's thinking about the family as a whole. So um, there is no easy answer, but we know that we know what the barriers are. I guess I'll say that. 
you know, jumping back to the original question um, <laughs> before I went off on a tangent. Um, we know what the barriers are. We know that the direct and indirect discrimination is there. We know that not all settings are yet set up to be fully inclusive settings. We know that we still have a segregated education system, which is there um, for, for various reasons, but it, it's there and we need to think about how we do that differently um, to still allow choice, but without institutionalising young people. Um, and and we need we need um, we need policy change, you know. We need people in those policy positions to, um, and I know there are, I know a lot of people in policy positions who really embrace the idea of inclusive education, but it's a long term shift and a change, and um, yeah, it takes a lot of courageous people to be able to come together to do it. So it's obvious for the listeners, you probably wouldn't know. Um, this is all what your um, into school, at school project that you're currently leading. That's This is all what that's about, really. Um, and you have a huge focus on marginalised communities and their experience with education. Um, but particularly with the increased risk of mental health issues for students with a disability, I want to ask you, what? how does that impact their education and the school setting with that? increase mental health risk yeah oh, good question um one of the one of the things we've not touched on i guess is comorbidities and so that is having more than one disability so we we do find that there are some um groups um of young people with particular diagnoses who may also be more highly represented in um in the mental health statistics as well so you know um youth who are autistic um we certainly find that youth that that come from trauma backgrounds um or have you know um there's comorbidity that sometimes goes with with a with a ptsd of other disabilities students with learning difficulties so students with like dyslexia dyscalculia we know that they're um you know, they may may have, and I'll use that very clearly, may have um, an increased risk. So we know that there is certainly can be for young people an increase who have disability an increased risk of mental health disorders. This can um, be linked to any any number of factors. We do know that that young people who um, have a disability are more likely to be victims of bullying or harassment. This, you know, can contribute to, um, or there can be links to mental health. We know that, you know, their sense of belonging and safety at school um, is something else. And again, if you aren't feeling safe or you aren't feeling like you belong, that can impact your mental wellness or your mental um, ill health. Um, and so there are a number of things that can happen that can impact a student's mental health leading to mental ill health and, and then to mental illness or mental health disorders if it gets to the point where it's really impacting their ability to function. So I think that we certainly have, um, as it's been in the media a lot, you know, we know that COVID, the COVID period, um, not only for states that were locked down where, where students, you know, were locked down for a really long time and families were locked down for a really long time, but even, even some of the other, you know, states that this didn't happen, um, that mental health has certainly been impacted. The loss of social connection, the loss of being with families, um, the, the, the sense of, you know, just 
I guess um, it's never going to end. Um, when are we ever going to get our, our, you know, life back as we know it? Um, that that was for all people, you know, and internationally as well. So we know that there's been big increases in, in mental health and risk of mental health. We know too for when it comes to school engagement and actually being able to attend school that poor mental health concern or a mental health, a mental illness, a mental health diagnosis can mean that students find it much harder to attend school. And so I guess that's where my, a lot of my work and my, my, my passion for this work comes from because all students should be able, should feel safe at school. They should feel supported at school. They should have an identity at school. They should feel they belong at school. And having a mental health disorder can, can kind of throw this off. And, and a school can have an environment where, you know, having a student want to be there doesn't always happen. So I think, um, I think you know, we need, to, we need to think really carefully about how we support young people's mental health in schools. And that starts at, say, a universal level. It starts at, you know, making sure that we've got really good uh, social-emotional learning programs happening for, for all students. Having students have access to people to speak to when they need to is really important. And that, again, with the demand is not necessarily the case for students either in school or, or out, of, out of school settings. Um, we know that once you start to disengage from school, getting back to school becomes really hard. And so schools that aren't picking up the early warning signs for students who are beginning to disengage. You know, as soon as if you know a young person is has got their has poor mental health or has been diagnosed with a mental health disorder, you know, you need to be putting, you need to be keeping an eye on these kids. And I don't mean, you know, following them around the, the school or anything, but I need to, need to be looking at their engagement in class. You need to be finding out are they engaging? Um, are they kind of withdrawing? from social activities or their friends? Do you see them on their own around the school? Are you finding they're coming to school late a lot? Do you find that they're missing certain days or certain sessions? There's lots of things that we can do. And, you know, I mean, I mean I'm talking about young people with mental health disorders at the minute, but these are early warning signs for young people without mental health disorders who might be disengaging from school as well. So we need to really start to look at what's happening for young people. We need to be paying attention to the data we're collecting at schools and actually seeing that it's telling us the story we need to know. So we need to be screening. We need to be really starting to check in with young people who are, you know, have had the occasional absence um, that, you know, doesn't really have a, have a, a necessarily a, an approved, um, I guess, uh, parent-focused um, okay or approval. Um, so, I mean, you know, the young people that we work with in our inter-school program and the inter-school at-school program, they can have been out of school anywhere from three months to two years. You know, that's a long time to be out of education. We know that we can't get these young people back to school until they firstly have sort of start to um, have their mental health needs supported and addressed. So, those are those that do have mental health needs disorders 
So they've got to be getting their, their therapeutic treatment. We have to be working with the families. So the families need support because the families have often tried a lot to get their child to school and it's not worked. And so they're tired and overwhelmed and don't know where to go. So it's a real, we have to use what we call a real wraparound model. We have to be thinking about who can we bring in to support this young person. So we need the family, we need the young person. We need, you know, allied health, mental health. We need the school. We need the educators, the teachers as well. And we need to really work together to sort of rebuild their mental well-being, but also rebuild their connection to school. So we need to make sure they've got trusted adults there. We need to check the environment is safe. We need to make sure when they're at school, there are safe spaces that they can take a break into. We need to make sure that there are peer support systems set up for them. Very often, these young people have, have lost their social network um, or they may have come into a setting without being able to establish a social network. And that is so important for, for well, for everybody, but particularly for young people as they move through adolescence. Um, so we need to think about how we can um, bring all of these people together in order to really um, support um, their mental health needs in order to bring them at school. Because the longer they stay out of school, the more likely there's going to be poor long-term outcomes with regard to, you know, they often would, young people may drop out of school, so their education's impacted. We know that education directly impacts employability. We know that, um, being isolated impacts ability to make social connections and have, you know, um, healthy relationships as you go into adulthood. So we know that untreated mental health means more likelihood of access to adult psychiatric health services. So there's a whole stack of blow-ons if we don't do something when we see the problem starting, when we don't do something intensive for those students who need it. And so we know, the thing is, we know there's hope. I'll finish up. <laughs> finish off this, this very long-winded answer at that point, <laughs> that there is hope. We know that with the right supports, that young people with mental health disorders who are disengaged from school, they can get back to school, they can continue with school, and they can have successful outcomes. But we as a society need to stop looking at short-term fixes, start looking at early intervention and the right types of supports and programs for young people um, as they need it. So I'm going to stop there. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for the answer. I think it's so important to raise that conversation as well around mental health and disability and people that may have these accessibility challenges. And something that really stuck out to me was when you said students should deserve, they should be have a right to go to school and they should have a right to feel safe at school. So recognising that some people might have those challenges and that the standard education model might not suit everyone is really important to be able to improve accessibility in schools and also in the world as well, I think. So thank you for touching on that. And I think you touched on this earlier as well about how we as a society can change, but is there a specific or practical steps that we can take as individuals, I guess, in a sense, that can help accessibility in both a school setting and just in the wider community as well? Yeah, look, I think educating ourselves 
is a really good start. So, you know, this sort of podcast that you're doing and the work that you're doing, I know, in your school setting is educating people and is um, allowing people to maybe explore um, topics and ideas and thoughts that they maybe may not have necessarily have gone to. So I think we need to do a lot with with education. We need to, and that's not only at school, that's that's in the adult population as well. I think that um, having people with disability who can speak to and about their lived experiences and what has helped them and what has also been a barrier for them is really, really important. I mean, to finally see, and you know, an Australian of the Year like Dylan Alcott, um, a man with disability, you know, he, I mean, he's been in the public eye for a long time, of course, because of his sporting achievements, but to have someone with lived experience being a voice for the broader community and encouraging others within the community to step up and step forward and talk about what they need is really important. I think things like the Disability Royal Commission, you know, you might not want to sit and listen to the Disability Royal Commission. I mean, it's very long, but, you know, they provide snapshots and they provide transcripts and they provide little snippets of information um, and reports um, after different uh, different sessions that kind of summarise what some of the key concerns and issues are. So having a resource like that at this particular time is, I think, something that's really helpful if people want to delve into that or if there are people who want to make um, that information accessible for others so that they can learn more. I think we need to stop being afraid to have conversations. I think we need to stop worrying that we might um, say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Um, you know, if we don't include people with disability and talk to people with disability about their experiences and, and what they need, then we're not going to learn and we're not going to um, be able to change the way that, that we respond. And I know, you know, for me particularly now working in an academic institution and doing research into this space, you know, one of the really important things that, you know, we, we like to do is to um, co-design our research, you know, with people with disability to make sure that the ways we're trying to impact education are being guided by and supported by the people for whom the impact needs to happen. You know, it's, it's for too long, I think, we've, we've tried to think about or, or parts of the system have tried to think what they think is best without engaging with the community. And that was, you know, I guess part of the stigma that, that, that thought that people with disability might not be able to do this, which, of course, is rubbish. So um, I think it's about um, really starting to use the resources that we've got because there is a lot out there to, yeah, educate, to involve people, to allow people to ask questions allow us to have hard conversations because these are hard conversations um, for the education sector itself to think about how we can shift and change and, and do better and 
not always do better, but do different, work differently. Um, and allowing, I guess, allowing people who are interested in this space to help lead the conversation um, rather than it, the information only going out to small groups of people. So that that more, yeah, stop stopping stopping what we're doing from being invisible. I think you know it's about making making this space really visible, and we're certainly getting much better at that. Um, got a way to go, but you know, there's certainly enough movement now, social movement happening that we're starting to see that we can make a difference. That a difference can be made for for people with, with and without disability in creating an inclusive um, space and society. Thank you so much, Dr. Lisa. Like, je- <clears throat> sorry, haven't spoke for a while. Oh, my gosh. Um, like, we have adored you coming on this episode, and I am definitely coming back to re-watch it so I can take in more things. Like, I was scribbling down notes, but I know I didn't take in everything that you said. And I loved how a lot of your key messages was reflected on um, what Dora and Dr. Forward had said in their panel because it just shows like how much passion there is about people that are interested in this topic and that are advocates for it that you know you have to see the person you have to listen to the person understand the person and I really loved how um you um sprinkling in your expertise shows how important resources are and you know how on a wider scale we need to Um, access those because they are available so genuinely we thank you so much for coming on our podcast and sharing your expertise and just providing so much insight about accessibility and you know everything under your reign so yes thank you thank you so much for having me it's been been a joy to talk to you it's been great awesome yeah thank you so much um we've really appreciated it i can't wait till this podcast gets out so then hopefully lots of people will listen to it um and to our listeners we hope that this conversation has inspired you to be more open-minded and to learn how we can be more empathetic to those who may face accessibility challenges in our current world and there are some practical actions we can do to help that i hope you've taken away from today and that's our two cents so that was our two cents worth We hope you utilise your ambition and enthusiasm to form meaningful connections with the wider community and recognise that to be your best self, you mustn't be afraid to form your own opinion, ask big questions, invite other perspectives in and always seek ways to be useful in service to the lives and learning of others.